The Lord be with you. Today, I stand up here not as one over or above anyone in the congregation, but just as one from among you, and I'm here to proclaim the good news that we proclaim together to each other. We proclaim the good news that in a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. I recently learned about a story uh, about uh, when they were integrating public schools in Durham, North Carolina, down in, in, in the South in 1971. It's a story about two individuals on opposite sides of the fence of, of this specific issue that were forced to work in close proximity. Some of you may be familiar with the story. So as, they, as the courts were ruling that they had to integrate these public schools, that no longer was it lawful for there to be white schools and black schools and for everything to be separate. The community was in complete turmoil. Uh, not only at the adult level was there a lot of fighting, you know, in city council, things like that, but also just at school. The kids were starting to get in fights over it, and so it seemed like it was just a ticking time bomb that needed to be addressed. And so somebody had the foresight to call, call a 10-day committee meeting for the whole community. And over that, there was appointed two, two chairs over that committee. One was Ann Atwater, and the other was C.P. Ellis. They were co-chairs of this 10-day community committee. Ann Atwater was a civil rights leader. She just happened to be a black woman in that area. And C.P. Ellis also just happened to be the, the leader of the local chapter of the KKK. And they were forced to co-chair this committee. Uh, now, whether or not they were chosen as co-chairs with actually the intention of them being able to find a way to work together is really suspect. I, I find it hard to believe that whoever put them together as co-chairs really saw it working out in any way at all. Um, in fact, it's, there's stories that kind of circle about this. It's hard to confirm because it was so long ago, but there's a story that says that CPL has actually brought a machine gun to their first day of meetings. And at one point in them working together, Ann Atwater had had so, she just had enough of, of hearing him go on these racist rants and, and call her a racial slur that she actually pulled a knife on him. So, as you can see, not a lot of love between the two of them and not really a conducive working relationship. It appeared by all, from, from any vantage point, it appeared to be completely helpless, uh, a hopeless situation. Clearly, no hope of them working together. The only question would be who would win out in the end? Which side would be victorious? Would it be the civil rights side of the issue or the, the KKK side of the issue? One obviously had to come out on top, and the other had to be subjugated. But in a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. Now, I think I can probably speak for most of us that the way that these antagonisms show up for us on a daily basis uh, are about a thousand times less dramatic. Usually the antagonisms I face are not such a clear-cut, bold issue. I haven't had anybody pull a knife or a machine gun on me. Uh, but nevertheless, we deal with this breakdown in relationship hundreds of times a day. We, we deal with it in small ways and in big ways. So whether it shows up for you with your coworker that just seems to take issue with every single thing that you do, or your neighbors who they post political rants that are offensive to you to the point that 
you check through your window two or three times before you go out and get the mail because you at, at all costs want to avoid having to have a face-to-face -face interaction with them. Or maybe it's a, someone that you thought was a friend of yours until the situation turned and it seemed to benefit them to, uh, to throw, throw you under the bus or ditch you. Perhaps it's another parent who seems to not so subtly always be implying that their kids are much more well-behaved than yours are. In a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination that we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. We all are, are familiar, probably, with Saul's conversion story. We've heard it a hundred times, and it's a really cool story. In fact, sometimes people personalize it and even will ask you what your road to Damascus experience was. And I think while we may have had a similar experience in our lives, I personally did not. You may have had that, but I think when we ask questions like that, we start to kind of miss the purpose of what's happening, what's actually going on in Saul's conversion. First of all, I think Saul's conversion is about him having to become blind so that he can truly see. Saul thought he was doing good work for the kingdom. He actually thought he was working for God, that he thought he was on God's side. He wasn't out to subvert the kingdom. Uh, he was doing the best that he thought he could at that time. He had a lot of really good ideas. He had a ton of training. He was super qualified to do this. In fact, you could say he was very biblical. So he wasn't aware of his blindness, and the idea of blindness, blindness to him was something that was totally foreign. If anybody could see clearly at that time, in Paul's mind, it was him, or Saul's mind, it was him. I think we see, we see juxtaposed in Saul's conversion to Stephen's martyrdom, two visions that are eerily similar. The heavens open up and a light shines down, but the two individuals that are seeing these visions have different eyes. Saul, has a, he is blind to what is going on in the kingdom, and so the light actually blinds him, whereas Stephen, as he's being dragged out of the city to be stoned, he rejoices in seeing the same vision. They have different eyes. The persecutor is blinded by the same vision that the persecuted rejoice in. Paul is forced, because of this blindness, to enter into the way of Christ in complete weakness and dependence. He's been, he has to be completely blinded so that he can see the world with new eyes. Now, on the flip side of this, we see a total change and a shift for Saul. He's totally blind. He has to enter in, in a posture of total weakness and dependence. But on the flip side, we have Ananias, who could not be more averse to helping Saul. He's heard tons about this guy. Not only has he heard bad stuff about him, but he knows that he's probably on his way to come and do bad stuff to him. I mean, if he ever had an enemy, Saul was his enemy. He's scared of Saul. Saul being blind probably sounds like a great thing to Ananias. It's something to, to rejoice in, not something to go and help fix. Ananias helping Saul is just as unlikely as Ann Atwater helping C.P. Ellis or those two working together. But in the end, Ananias is faithful. In fact, when he first greets Saul, he greets him as brother from the start. That's before anything really has happened. He's just being obedient to the call of God to step towards him, even in spite of his fears, in spite of his knowledge that Saul is a threat to him. He calls him brother. He lays hands on Paul, and his sight is restored. And Saul, is, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then after that, he's baptized, and they break bread together. And again, 
in the breaking of bread around Christ's table, Christ is present, and he's making friends of enemies. That relationship is redeemed. The humanity on both sides is restored and redeemed. We see a similar thing with Peter in the passage from John that we heard this morning. Peter is coming off of just a few chapters earlier denying Christ and kind of taking a posture of somebody that either doesn't know Jesus or maybe you could even make the argument was an enemy of Christ. He's backing away at Christ's time of need at his weakest moment. And yet at the, at the first sight, at his first realization that Christ is on the shore, he jumps right over the side of the ship and swims to the beach to go be with Jesus. Peter's been through enough that he's he welcomes it. He doesn't have to be blinded by a light. He's totally comfortable going to Christ in weakness because he knows the welcomeness and the care and the salvation that's coming. So he's comfortable coming in a posture of complete weakness and dependence. Once again, we see just like in the story of, of Paul and Ananias, there's breaking of bread and in Christ's presence, relationship is redeemed. In a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. Unlike Saul and Ananias, most of our adverse relationships, we don't have like a message from God. We haven't had a, an audible voice most of the time. We haven't seen a vision from heaven a lot of the time. In fact, it usually manifests in our lives that we end up paired with somebody that we have to co-chair a committee with or that we have to work alongside or live next door to. But we just can't imagine having a real relationship with that person. It just seems like a natural circumstance that we're in. What does it look like for us to be faithful in these circumstances, in these relationships? Cornell West says that to be a Christian is to live dangerously, honestly, freely, to step in the name of love as if you may land on nothing, yet to keep stepping because the something that sustains you, no empire can give you and no empire can take away. I think part of what sustains us to continue to step in love, not knowing if we'll have something to land on, is the freedom that we've received, the freedom from posturing, the freedom from being responsible for determining our own inness or our own rightness, that freedom to come to the table and to kneel and to receive the body and blood of Christ in a posture of weakness, independence. Taking on that posture frees us up from having to be over and above our neighbors or more right than the person that we disagree with or the person that's out to get us, maybe. Maybe a direct threat to us. That's the freedom that we find at Christ's table. We come to the table of our Lord not in strength, not as authorities on how to live right, but in weakness. We come in dependence, just like Peter and just like Saul. In a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. One day, as C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater were working together, C.P. Ellis finally went too far. A gospel choir came in and was singing, and he was singing along with him, but he was actually clapping offbeat. And Ann Atwater had finally had, had enough. She had to say something to him about this. And so she told him that day that she was going to teach him how to clap on the right beat. Uncomfortable as it surely was, worshiping alongside each other began to open their eyes to the things that they had in common, to their humanity once again. They no longer could dehumanize each other. 
Each of their children were being negatively impacted by their roles as co-chairs of this committee. They each were seriously concerned about the well-being of their kids, about the education that they would be receiving. Was it going to be on par with that of middle America, or were they both going to get less than that because they were both in poor communities? They were each committed to fighting for their community, for their children, to have a good education. As they realized what they had in common, humanity was ascribed to the other. It was restored. It was redeemed in their sight for the other person. At the end of the 10-day community meeting, C.P. Ellis actually renounced his role in the Klan, and in front of a crowd, he tore up his membership card. Not only did they end up having a good working relationship, but from then on, they were friends for the rest of their life. Actually, at C.P. Ellis' funeral in 2005, Ann Atwater delivered the eulogy. I think sometimes the only imagination we have is to either win in a relationship or to avoid it, or if we're assigned to work with somebody for 10 days, it's just to get through it. But the good news that we're hearing today, the good news is that the kingdom of Jesus redeems and restores relationship. It doesn't just give you the willpower or the strength to pretend to be kind for 10 days, just to to get through it or to win and get your way, but to actually have a real redeemed human relationship with somebody. I need to hear this good news in so many areas of my life, so many different relationships, whether they're family relationships, friendships, or work relationships. Most recently, as I was studying this week, what came to mind was I had a breakdown recently in relationship with a client of mine who was referred to me, it was a friend of a friend who I was working with, which is always an interesting situation as a realtor because there's kind of this built-in relationship, but you also don't really know the person at all. But it was going great. We started working together. There's kind of this built-in trust. My whole job is basically built on trust. Uh, and at some point in the process, I don't know what happened, if I did something or something shifted on my client's end of, the thing, of this whole relationship, but there was clearly a lack of trust. And it was named between us that I was no longer trusted. And my reaction to that was either to prove how wrong this client was and how they should trust me, or to just do what I normally do, which is to be like, well, looks like you're dead to me. <laughs> it's a lot easier to do it that way. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> I'm still hearing this good news, and I'm still praying that God would foster an imagination in me for how to participate in, in where the kingdom is breaking in to this specific relationship and many others in my life. Because it's hard for me to understand what my responsibility is as a realtor to do here. I don't know, but as a, as a believer, as a follower of the way, I know that having a broken relationship, and for me to take on that posture of knowing that I'm right to the point that I don't care anything about what's going on with the other person is not in line with the posture of Christ. How does this show up for you? Where are the areas of your life that you're in this feels directly tied to your performance? Can you lay that down and come in weakness to Christ's table today? What would it look like for the kingdom to break through in your relationship with your antagonistic coworker or your neighbor with the offensive political views? 
that friend that hurt you, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister? What would it look like for the kingdom to break through in those relationships today? What would it look like to participate in that breakthrough? In a world where tanks and tariffs are the only imagination we have for overcoming threats, at Christ's table, enemies are disarmed and embraced. Foes become friends. Relationship isn't just stomached. It isn't just pushed through. You don't have to white-knuckle it. Relationship can be redeemed in the kingdom of God. One of the ways that we're going to respond to this good news today is by coming to Christ's table in, in that posture of weakness and dependence, not because we're authorities on right living or on theology, but because we know we need him. We need the kingdom in our life. We need relationship restored. We need a new imagination for what it means to be in relationship with others. Another way that we'll respond is in prayer together. There's a prayer printed in your booklet that we can all, all pray, all lead us, but it says, Jesus, show me where I must become blind so you can teach me to truly see. Show me how I can participate in the inbreaking of your kingdom in. And then if you'll say, Lord, in your mercy, we'll all say, hear our prayer together. Let's take a moment and just reflect and pray that the Holy Spirit would, would bring those areas of our life that we need breakthrough to the top of our mind. Brothers and sisters, the worship is over. The service is beginning. I'm going to proclaim a benediction over you. You, church, have no real enemies now because in Christ you lack nothing. There's nothing that you need to gain from anyone else. You don't need to be right, and you don't need to overcome threats with violence because you have been disarmed at Christ's table, and you have been embraced at Christ's table. So go in that power that disarming, embracing power, the power of Christ's love. Go in that power, disarming others with love and embracing others in solidarity. Go now and follow the risen Christ. Love God. Nourish the faith of God's little ones. Make Christ known to all people. For God has chosen you as an instrument to lead others into the way of mercy and love. And may God change your anguish into joyful dance. And may Christ Jesus lead you from betrayal to mission. And may the Holy Spirit fill you with light and love and purpose. Church, let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Alleluia! 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 Thanks be to God. Alleluia! 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 Amen.